Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Welcome to the show, Yuki. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat about your story because you're one of the few people from Southeast Asia tackling space, especially with your background in space law, as well as the fact that you're a writer and a lover of science fiction. So lots of juicy stuff to talk about, as well as your upcoming founder journey as well. Yeah, more than happy to share. As you mentioned, I am a space lawyer by trade. So I am a published space lawyer. I'm also a founder and a previous prior on deck alumnus, participated in the on deck writing fellowship. So as you mentioned, right now I am working on a stealth mode project that is aiming to democratize access to orbit by uncomplicating the space mission planning process. I'm also, or I was, I I still like to claim that I am because, but I haven't written any science fiction recently. But I like to. Claim Claimed I am still a science fiction author. So previously, my work has been published by Springer Nature as well as the European Space Agency. That would be my academic work. I have also presented at conferences, delivered lectures, and I'm also one of the youngest Singaporeans to speak at the UN. So recently, I delivered a small speech at the UN on space law. Yeah, I also head two research and advisory teams with a global NGO called the Space Generation Advisory Council. So what we do is we mainly do space law research work on national implementing legislative measures as well as space sustainability. So I recently also advised the government of Uganda on their draft space policy and legislation because uh, yeah, Uganda is looking to get into the space game. At present, I'm with Donaldson and Birkinshaw here in Singapore. So Donaldson and Birkinshaw is Singapore's oldest law firm, and I'm working with them. To build up an exciting new space law practice area. Could you share how you got started in space? How did your love of space begin? Well, I think I've always been a fan of space. I've always loved science fiction since I was a kid. So I think it started in 2002. My dad brought me to go see Star Wars Episode Two on opening night, and. I was just hooked instantly. I we got the tickets late, so we had to sit in the front row. But honestly, it was just such a mesmerizing experience. There's that scene at the end where it's just you know lightsabers flashing in the dark. It was incredible. That was that was the start of my science fiction journey. I've been fascinated with space and science fiction ever since. And then of course I bridged into law because I wasn't very good in at math in school, but I was fairly good at speaking. So. I went into law, and I've always been trying to find a way to make those two interests dovetail. A while back, I was offered an opportunity to co-found a startup working on space, for which they needed a space lawyer, and I didn't really hesitate. I just jumped right in, because space is one of the most heavily regulated industries in the world. As you understand, space, all of space tech is what we call dual use, which means they can be easily militarized, and because of that. Controls and regulations on space technology all over the world are very tightly controlled, and as such, yeah, they needed somebody to to understand who understood regulatory environment, who could navigate everything successfully, and that's how I got started, and I've been doing that ever since. Amazing, there you are, and obviously, I totally resonate because I myself remember my dad taking me out for episode one <laughs> on opening night. 
Uh, and I remember the uh, theater just being very jubilant about the uh, return of Star Wars. And uh, it's been interesting to see a lot of that maturation of the Star Wars ecosystem. In fact, I was pretty much watching Star Wars this last night. I think I was watching mm-hmm. uh, The Bad Batch on Disney+. Plus. Same, uh, same. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it is what it is. Let's talk a little bit more about the science fiction before we go into all the, you know, space side as well. What is it about science fiction that drew you in as a kid that made you kind of like get you started on space, right? So one of the things that's always fascinated me about science fiction is this enduring theme of human nature that it's almost as if the science fiction setting is set dressing or an opportunity to allow our inner humanity to manifest itself in a different way because of different existential circumstances. And I think that's one of the interesting things to me that no matter how far we go in the galaxy, no matter how much time passes, we are fundamentally still human and we still have those sorts of human traits that we that we see span across the eons. On a certain level, I think it is a bit egocentric of us because we're projecting our own belief systems into the future or into the past. But I also think that, on the other hand, there is an element of truth there. And that element of truth, that element of consistency points us toward what it truly means to be human. So what's interesting is that there's lots of people who watch science fiction and same as me, and they don't go into space, right, as an industry. So what happened right here? Yeah. Well, yeah, like I said, so I got offered an opportunity to co-found a startup that was working on space. It, it, and I don't know, it, it was almost like one of those epiphany moments where everything just sort of comes together. It's very serendipitous. And I saw in that an opportunity to really make my mark on the real world and do the things that I loved. Yeah, do the things that I loved using the skills that I had. The irony is, of course, that re- actual space, you know, the actual commercial space industry is nothing like science fiction. It is not even remotely close. So, you know, joke's on me. I think that that enduring passion and that drive for that exploratory drive to go out and see what else is out there and expand our foothold into the universe as a, as a species, I think that is ultimately what, what I gained from science fiction and what carried me into the space industry. So let's walk through that chronology a little bit. So there you were, just like every Singaporean male called to serve the motherland mm-hmm. as a battalion staff officer. And then after that, you joined Lore, which makes sense. And were you already looking at space along the way? Or was it only when Anchor Orbital came knocking that you kind of got the, swung into space? Yeah. yeah, it was only when Anchor Orbital came knocking, really. Actually, fun fact, when I was in law school, I wanted to be a constitutional lawyer. So that's why I specialized in human rights and public law and administrative law. And uh, that was a big thing for me for a long while. And I do love constitutional law. It is, it is one of those things that I've discovered a deep passion for. And in fact, my first book publication, which was about the rule of law on Mars, the rule of law is, of course, a constitutional law concept. It is one of the most fundamental tenets of democratic legal systems the world over. So even now, I'm trying to import in those constitutional law lessons that I learned. But no, I didn't start out with space law. It was an adaptive response to what I had to do in order to go along on this adventure. Okay, my visualization is, here's someone who learns what Star Wars, is a lawyer deep in constitutional law, 
And then a space company somehow reaches out to you and says, here's an opportunity. And you are like, yes, I actually love space way more than the current track of constitutional law. Is that a fair paraphrase of what happened? No. Yeah, essentially, there was actually a little bit of a middle section right after I graduated. I got in my head that I wanted to do a PhD in AI law and policy. So I spent uh, a few months doing that. I applied for my PhD. And then Anchor Orbital came knocking and I was like... Well, I think I'd rather do this. So I dropped the PhD plans. I went and I jumped head first, eyes closed, can't lose. <laughs> Basically YOLO, right? Yeah, essentially. Yeah. And were you already writing science fiction already then? Yes. Is that, or was it later? So you're already writing science fiction? Yes, I've been writing science fiction for about 10 years now. And I, I think it started off as a creative outlet as well as a means for me to reach out into the world. Because I think when you grow up, especially when you grow up in Singapore, you get a... We, we live in a little bit of a bubble, I think. And everything's provided for on our little island. And there isn't really all that much impetus to move out or to, to seek out other things. And I think writing science fiction was my first real attempt at reaching out into the wider world and interacting with the wider world. And then, of course, when I enlisted, then it became an outlet for me to sort of process all the experiences that I was going through and understand and come to terms with what I was going through in a setting that I was comfortable with and that I could comprehend much more readily. And I think that's mainly what science fiction has been since the army. It's been that just that Back processing of a backlog of memories and, and thoughts and uh, trying to build something constructive out of that. What's the favorite piece that you've written and why? Piece that I've written? Um, let's see. I've got two pieces that I think would rank as my favorite. One of them was published by the, uh, the Ministry of Education in like a little collective anthology that they did a few years back. And the other I recently published on my Substack just because. So the first one was about an engineer who's on a deep space voyage when his ship gets raided by bandits. And everybody on the ship dies except him. And he's in this ship that's limping. And all he has for company is the shipboard AI. And it's just a journey of their development and their relationship as it grows because obviously she's an AI, she's not real, she's a facsimile. But it's mostly a story about how this engineer in his in this crushing, oppressive, lonely atmosphere where you know hope is effectively lost, how he finds and creates devices for him to, to cling on to so that he can keep going. And uh, the second piece is just about... Honestly, it's just a really weird piece. It's just about a, an ML algorithm that is used to help people process memories. And it's about that internal perspective of not knowing the inherent value or meaning of anything, but just understanding things as they correlate to others. If I had to choose, that those would probably be my top two. Amazing. And I'm just kind of curious because I'm also a nerd who loves reading science fiction. Who are your favorite authors? You say top three. Philip K. Dick, Ray Bradbury, and well, my third favorite author is actually Hemingway. So not a sci-fi author, but definitely the first two, Philip K. Dick and Ray Bradbury. Oh, third one would be Joe Halderman. Very nice. I think I've been really appreciative actually of Anne Leckie actually recently. It's a great series as well. And primarily because I think she has a very interesting take on as a fresh female sci-fi author, obviously winner of all these various Hugo and Galaxy Awards. And I think Lucy Singh has been also been nice 
and refreshing as an Asian author tackling that. And I also actually really like, I'll say old school, Isaac Asimov, the Foundation series, probably. Mm. And of course, Ender's Game as well. That's another one, the whole uh, series. I know that everybody loves Foundation. Personally, my favorite, iRobot. has Ooh, to be iRobot. I'm the opposite. I didn't like the iRobot series. I love the Foundation <laughs> series. A psychohistory basically pushed me towards learning economics. I think I like that macro view, but I definitely understand the iRobot dynamic as well. It's very more ethics and humanistic discussion around future. Mm. Yeah. I think that's actually an interesting observation because I have actually personally found that I tend towards those sort of smaller scale stories. I I quite like the the stuff that's on the grand scale, so like Foundation or Canticle for Leibovitz. But there's just something about character-centric stories that always gets me. I've always found myself trending more towards that rather than grand space operas, which is ironic because I love Star Wars. <laughs> Star Wars is the gateway drug for science fiction. So. Yeah. Yeah, I have read a lot of science fiction along the way. And I think obviously Star Wars does a good job uh, actually tackling all of those different uh, aspects of it, right? from the character to the grand arcs as well. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the gap between the perception of space as in science fiction versus the reality of the space industry. And so I'd love to dig deeper into that. You see, one of the differences, of course, is big difference in reality in terms of, so could you explain what the difference is? Well, I think one of the first major misconceptions is that everything is about launch services and rockets and such. It really isn't. Launch services actually comprises, in terms of market share, one of the smallest components of the overall space industry. It comprises a very small percentage of satellite services, which form the bulk of value. But even then, it's just a fraction. So it's a fraction of a fraction. It's just because that rockets are the most publicly visible thing. But you know, every aspect of our lives is touched by space. If we think about you know, very plain or easy to see applications like Google Maps, stuff like that is informed by satellite imagery and satellite information. But we also think of things like tracking the weather. Your average farmer today utilizes a ton of satellite imagery and satellite information and intelligence because they use it to track weather patterns, they use it to track in order to safeguard their crops. Insurers today, for large areas of property that they underwrite, they rely on space-derived intelligence as well. So a lot of the space industry is not lasers and rockets and all the fun stuff that we commonly think of. It's actually comparatively... I don't want to say pedestrian, but it is essentially very boring stuff. And that is one of those long, unstated goals of the space industry. We are looking to make space boring. You know, like how maritime trade today is fairly boring, but it used to be the bee's knees. Same thing. We're looking to make space more boring than it was before, which is not really something that you hear all that often, especially in regard to the popular uh, prevailing narrative about space. Yeah, it'd be a boring movie if the ship worked and had fail-safes that worked and could go from point A to point B without a catastrophic depressurization event or something else like that. Yeah, I think one of the most realistic depictions of a comparatively boring phenomenon is gravity. You've seen gravity, right? So you know that part where Sandra Bullock's space shuttle gets shredded by a a chunk of debris. That is a real thing. That is actually a real problem that we're facing today in the space industry. Debris mitigation and just orbital pollution. When you say it like that, it doesn't sound very exciting. It sounds very far away and distant because it is. It is is literally physically distant from our everyday lives because this stuff is at least 500 kilometers up. But it is a major issue that is a, a pressing concern. It's a prescient concern. 
And there is somewhat of a reckoning coming, I think, if the space industry continues with its current unsustainable practices. Uh, the good thing is that everybody is jumping onto the space sustainability train. Everybody's recognizing the urgency of the situation and is and, and they're taking steps to correct it, states and private actors. In terms of what that disconnect between public perception and what is the reality of it, I don't think uh, space sustainability features very prominently in the minds of most people when they think about space, but it certainly features in the minds of most people in the industry. Yeah, and what's interesting, and I'd love to go deeper, <laughs> you know, if you'll be willing to humor me, is obviously a lot of the pollution and everything's happening because of the tragedy of the commons. So the space is this giant space mm-hmm. where you know nobody has private ownership rights. Uh, and so people just throw trash in there effectively. And it's someone body else's problem in aggregate. I'm so curious because it feels like there are like two futures in every science fiction story, but also from every kind of mystery, which is, is space really a public domain for it to be shared by everybody? Or should it be more of a private domain and property rights equivalent? And so what's your perspective on that? Okay, so um, this actually does segue quite nicely into my space law practice. The fundamental basis, actually, of all of space law and consequently space activity is the principle of the freedom of exploration and use. So it's clearly stated in uh, Article 1 of the Outer Space Treaty, which is the foundational document on which all space law is built, that space is free. Space is free to explore and to use, and that there is a general principle of non-appropriation. So no state is allowed to um, lay claim to any part of space. Of course, as we understand property rights, it's one of those things that falls under the wider principle of Nimodat, non-quad habet, which is essentially, you can't give away what you don't own. So the interesting dilemma surrounding the give granting of property rights in space is the question of who is competent to give said rights, because based on what we understand in law today, nobody is competent. It is a bit of an open-ended question. So last year, NASA, well, the previous NASA administrator, Jim Bridenstine, he announced a program by NASA to spur further commercial activity, wherein it was an open contract for any companies that wanted to go to the moon and bring back lunar regolith, NASA would pay for it. They're not even really using the regolith for much, to be honest, because they have plenty of moon rock samples, as I understand. They understand the chemical composition of the moon fairly well. All that it was designed to do was just spur a space economy around resource exploitation and spur a lunar economy. But the question is, if you are buying this regolith from the private company, you are implying that the private company has the right to sell the regolith, in which case the question is, who gave them that right? So it is still somewhat of an open question. We haven't had to deal with it yet because the first missions that are aiming to bring back the regolith aren't going to be back for a couple of years. I think the Isra- there's one Israeli company that immediately jumped on it, and I think they're slated to launch in 22 or 23. So yeah, we'll, that, that will be an interesting question to deal with. A short answer, I honestly have no idea. I think that space should remain an open and free space because otherwise you do run into the issue of national appropriation. And we've seen elsewhere how that could end up. The Antarctica was a, was a great example of how we very nearly came to a place where private, where national interests overrode the common scientific good. Um, And it's only through the grace and the courage of a few scientists who stood up and, you know, rallied the public support against the national governments that sought to appropriate 
Antarctic territory that we were able to avoid that situation. On the other hand, I also recognize that it is almost impossible to spur further economic activity in space if you don't grant property rights. Nobody wants to fund an expensive asteroid mining mission if you can't be guaranteed that you will make some money off of it. So I think a balance does have to be struck and it is a very relevant question for this next decade in terms of what should space lawyers be thinking about. Yeah, and obviously I'm not a lawyer in this one. I'm more of an economics and history nerd here. And so, you know, this is very much of the classic old world, new world exploration where governments had to decide whether they're going to self-fund public expeditions or whether they will allow privatized corporations effectively with, of course, state sponsorship and backing and guarantees to go out there. And yeah, like you said, it's hard to set up an asteroid mining operation if the company doesn't know that the asteroid is the ass. And conversely, you and I could understand and say like, if someone said and said, hey, if you land on Mars, you get a 20 by 20 kilometer patch and that's yours, like the wild, like the wild, wild west, go west in America, then every, every rocket ship is on its way to uh, plant a little flag to own a little piece of Martian property for the next millennia, right? Yeah, I think from an economics perspective, I think that the prior experiment of quasi-state-run corporations like the East India Company and the West Indies Company, I think those are very informative or, or illustrative of what sort of shape I think our extraterrestrial efforts will take, it will definitely have to be state-backed. Not least because of the way that current space law is structured. So here's a little fun space fact for you. Everything in space law operates at the national level. So if today we were to launch a satellite and we were very, very reckless or careless about it and that satellite happened to smash into the ISS and wreck the ISS and kill everybody aboard, we wouldn't be personally liable. The government of Singapore would be personally liable as well as whoever, as, as well as the government of whichever territory from which we launched the satellite. So because of the way that liability works in space law, any effort at an extraterrestrial mission will have to be state-sponsored by that virtue alone. Oh, wow. I love it. Just the concept of uh, the rebirth of the EIC <laughs> in space. That's a, now that's a movie I want to watch. I want to watch that series. And then we're going to have space pirates and uh, space bacteria as uh, local natives, I guess. Yeah, it is a bit of a terrifying prospect. I, I certainly hope that we will do things more responsibly in the future. And I, I would like to think that we as a species have learned our lessons from our past mistakes. When Mars is that far away, anything tends to be a situation of uh, anything goes. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, of course, is that here you are building out this career and you feel like one of the few Southeast Asians to really be tackling this, right? You mentioned this government Singapore and of course Singapore is trying, but it's not a huge thing versus obviously the States and everything. So how do you feel about that? Is that historical inevitability that Southeast Asia is the boondocks for space based on the trajectory of how space is building out? Or do you see that as a open space for Southeast Asia to get into? I think that space as an industry, even though it has ostensibly existed for coming on 40-ish years now, with the first sort of commercial space activity taking place in the 80s, I think even with that sort of heritage, space is still very young. It's still in its very nas most nascent stages because most of the space industry hasn't actually been proven. So much of what we see today in terms of the large space companies are just dipping their toes in the water. They're just barely getting their feet wet and they are all announcing plans to go much bigger. 
So I think everything is still relatively up for grabs. I think in terms of Southeast Asia itself, we are actually naturally advantaged because of our geographical position. Our proximity to the equator renders us very advantageous to set up for spaceports and launch sites because we offer direct access to equatorial orbits. Now, there are this different discussions on the, on, on the merits of different types of orbits. A sun-synchronous orbit will be along the y-axis and equatorial is, of course, along the x. But fact is that at present, we have sufficient sun-synchronous or polar orbital launch capability in the form of the northern countries. We don't have a whole lot of equatorial launch sites. There are roughly about two, Florida, uh, you know, Cape Canaveral, and Australia. And even then, Australia is still further south than us. So you could do better, to be honest. So I think that there is space for us. There is space for Southeast Asia. Indonesia, I know, is looking to capitalize on that easy access to equatorial orbit by building a proposing a spaceport in Papua um, in, I think it's called Biak. So they are looking at it in terms of us, Singapore specifically. I think that we have, of course, very Prussian geopolitical concerns. We are somewhat small and there isn't a whole lot of space to lo start launching satellites from. But I think that we still have a part to play. We can have a part to play. And it would be very similar to the part that we've been playing in many other industries because ultimately we have a pool of highly skilled, highly talented workers who are capable of performing uh, service activities. Everything that's ancillary to a satellite launch mission because, yeah, a satellite launch mission isn't just rockets and satellites. There's a whole lot else that goes into it. That would be a nice dream. Imagining from your home, kind of watch satellites go out every week, you know, during the launch window. That'd be nice, huh? I think the folks at Boca Chica might disagree with you slightly. I think once you've seen one, you've seen them all, and after a while, it gets a bit annoying. It's kind of like how people keep complaining that fighter jets are flying overhead. At first, it's a novelty. After a while, it gets to be a bit of a bore. Yeah, well, there you are creating the future, right? I don't know. It's like one of those nice science fiction TV series. I guess they don't go into noise pollution. <laughs> yeah, A silent rocket, that would be the next big revolution in, in launch technology, a silent rocket. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure what the, what the incentives to build that would be. <laughs> uh, yeah. So let's talk about that. So obviously we see a lot of, I think, domestic activity in Singapore and Southeast Asia where obviously folks are tinkering with their own national sat satellites projects. I think obviously they just have that process and obviously some national pride and patriotism there. And of course, there's some commercial activity where there's like leasing of capacity in private sector initiatives. And I think you started mentioning about the possibility of there being startup activity in space in Singapore and Southeast Asia. So what do you mean by that? I mean, Shouldn't every rocket scientist, and you know, it either be in India, China, Russia, or America, does Southeast Asia have enough space talent or even the right incentives to put together a space industry? Well, like I said, I think that the space industry isn't just physicists and rocket engineers. In fact, the thing that I've noticed, and this might seem somewhat counterintuitive, 
the thing that the 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 one sort of skill set that isn't in that doesn't have any sort of shortfall in the space industry are physicists and engineers. In fact, what we are lacking are all the other skills, particularly software development, but also other ancillary things, operational capabilities, and those sorts of skill sets needed to actually successfully run missions and run businesses. Business development, legal is one major gap, and incidentally, all of these skill sets are the same sort of things that I think Singapore has always traditionally excelled at. They're not capital intensive. They're not. They don't require. Uh, actual hardware to be on the ground. These are all effectively people skills, and that is the one thing that we uh, that we have in abundance. We have people who are skilled, who are capable of learning, who are willing to learn, and all of these roles can be performed remotely. So that just opens up a whole world of possibilities in which Singapore can be involved in the space industry, not necessarily as a rocket launching state or you know not necessarily as a spacefaring state, but nonetheless there is still that back. End End, uh, or sometimes even front-end support role for us. Ah, can't wait to see space UX designers, space marketers, space growth hackers. <laughs> That'll be fun to see. Yeah, they actually already exist. They are an uh, interesting bunch, to say the least. <laughs> they, they deal with very interesting problems. I think most of them have quite a, a lot of fun just because the subject matter itself is exciting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I always remember looking at the new uh, SpaceX uniforms and I was like, wow, that must have been fun to update those uniforms. <laughs> you know, did they pull someone off from Hollywood, maybe? Uh, must have pulled up a bunch of stills from other various like science fiction shows. What would look rad, you know, on top of, of course, being functional and actually utilitarian that way. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there, I think that there are plenty of roles for a skilled, talented workforce in the space industry that don't necessarily have to do with rockets and such. Of course, that is not to disparage our talented engineers because we do have a number of talented engineers. In fact, I've actually come across quite a few Singaporeans in my time, not working here, but working in various different organizations like the European Space Agency. They're just there doing their thing. And it's always fun to encounter them in the wild. Let's talk about that, which is that, you know, you suddenly talk about something interesting, which is that I think the past space industry has always been very national-centric, right? I mean, obviously, NASA at the time, you know, everything belonged in one agency in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And obviously the European side and then the Russians. And then now suddenly spread into the private sector, and but still very geographically bound. And now you're talking about something interesting, which is talking about it being remote as well. So let's talk about that. Where do you see the future of the ability to work in the space industry? What does that look like from your perspective? Well, I think the first thing would be to delineate the concept of the space industry because I think it's very tempting to to think of it as a monolith, which it of course isn't. Like any other industry, it has has nooks, it has crannies, it has many, many silos because the, the space industry is very heavily siloed. But when I think of the future of the space industry, I think of aggregation. I think that we will start trying to bring together all these disparate subsectors. We'll be try. We'll be able to connect them. And because I think right now one of the major issues is transaction costs. Just because you waste so much time and effort liaising with all these different stakeholders, on any given satellite mission, you have at the very minimum nine groups of stakeholders. So if you imagine just the sheer amount running back and forth you have to do as the operator, it's it is a very daunting task. And the thing about space, any sort of pure play space venture, 
they're not generating any value or revenue as if they're not in orbit. If they don't have assets up there, if the assets are on the ground, they're sitting there, it is a money sink. And that is, of course, why launch delays are so deadly to so many satellite companies because that puts off the entire timeline, that messes with their runway and their burn rate. So I think that the future of the space industry will be aggregation. I think part of enabling that aggregation will be to enable remote services because you want to be able to bring in the best from wherever it is they are on Earth. You don't want it to be necessarily constrained to territory. You have brought up a very relevant point, which is that Space has traditionally always been deeply tied with national security concerns, and it is still that same way in the United States because of the way that the U.S. export control regime works. U.S. space companies are not allowed to hire non-U.S. nationals, which is why I, I think you might have heard before that SpaceX only hires American citizens. It's not just because of the talent pool in the States and you know that long heritage. It's also because the law literally prohibits them from hiring anybody else. So I think given the sheer size of of the American space market, the law would have to change in order for that vision of mine to come true, wherein can aggregate talent from all over the globe. Whether or not it will change, I think is very up in the air. It's very much up to the sort of capricious nature of Congress to decide on. In respect of all the other places on Earth where which don't have these sorts of restrictions, so Europe certainly doesn't, India doesn't, and China actually doesn't, but China's laws are currently somewhat of a patchwork, and I think they quite like it that way, although they, I have heard that they are intending to produce omnibus legislation that clearly sets everything out, but I think they're still in that learning phase where they're deciding what, what best practices should they actually codify in law. So nobody else has these sorts of re restrictions, uh, unlike the Americans. So I think that the rest of the world is capable of getting on with this aggregative exercise. And I think sooner or later, the Americans will catch on as well. Speaking about the Chinese and US, obviously, there seems to be like the two and a half horse race <laughs> in the globally, right? US and China, and then everybody else is like the 0.5 for as a multipolar slash, you know, ambivalent slash non-aligned countries dynamic. Do you feel like that's going to reflect in space as well, like that uh, multipolar aspect around space exploration, law, industry activity? I think we are already seeing some indication of that. As you pointed out earlier, space used to be very much of a national prestige project, and I would argue that it still very much is. For new space states like Israel, you can see that it is still very inherently tied to national identity and national pride, which is to be expected because it's space, the, 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 the final frontier. It's one of those things that you feel that swell of national pride and that drive to start waving a flag. So I think that is... Uh, a multipolar environment is inevitable when you still have that sort of dynamic in play. I think that China's recent prominence on the space stage, because I, I wouldn't call it emergence, China has been doing a fair amount of things in space for quite some time. I think it's just that recently they're doing more publicly prominent things and that's why we, we, we are starting to see a bit more attention paid to them. And it seems to be almost like a new space race type of dynamic. 
But you know, I think that's a bit of a misconception. China has always been there. The Chinese space program dates back to even the original space race between the Soviets and the states. I think that because of China's recent emergence, um, you're starting to see a bit of a policy shift back into that nationalist state on the part of the Americans. The European Space Agency is also doing its novel best to advance its objectives in the ways that it sees most suitable. So, of course, the European Space Agency has its own priorities, so does NASA, so does the CNSA. To an extent, so does Roscosmos, even though they've somewhat fallen by the wayside in recent years. They are still there, and they are still very much relevant. So I think, yes, we we absolutely will see a multipolar environment, at least in the near future. I can't speak as the distant future. So China recently announced its plans to, to put a crewed mission on Mars by 2033, I think. I don't know what the space environment will look like by 2033. I don't know if we will have abandoned these national ideal or the yeah this this entire anger of national prestige and pride at least to some extent or whether or not we will double down. I think that is very much something that we have to wait and see for. Ooh, that's the science fiction authors, and readers, and us must be trying to do some predictions here. Let's see. I'll make a prediction. And my prediction is that the Americans are going to try to beat Chinese to the Mars of the crude mission. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's absolutely going to happen. I think it's definitely going to be a very competitive environment, at least in the short to medium term. I think there are a few schools of thought on this, actually, on what international interaction will be like on the, in space and what drives that. I think that thus far, most players, or at least insofar as the Soviets and the Americans are concerned, both of them recognize that cooperation was ultimately the best path forward because of the inherent and sort of intrinsic physical and environmental restraints that space imposes. Because... Space is a very hazardous environment. Space is a very unforgiving environment. And it helps to have friends in that regard. But with sort of the advancements that we've seen in the last few years, who knows, maybe that dynamic is going to change. Maybe we will return to a future of technological determinism. Yeah, I can't say, but I, yes, I absolutely agree. The Americans are definitely going to want to beat the Chinese. <laughs> I mean, that's a trope of all science fiction is that technology is now version 7.37 and humans are still version 0.1 alpha. <laughs> and uh, that's the crux of it. Every science, good science fiction story is not just man versus nature in terms of technology, but really man versus self. Yeah, it's always man versus self, man versus man. Because I guess we just can't help ourselves. <laughs> yep, we can't help ourselves. <laughs> you heard it here first. You heard it first. Our prediction is that Americans are going to try to beat the Chinese. <laughs> in case you didn't already know that. Right now. <laughs> uh, anyway, that'll be a fun one to watch. So I guess we'll, we'll get to revisit this podcast episode in about a dozen years. Maybe even sooner than that. I, I certainly hope we'll still be around to revisit this podcast in a dozen years. And hopefully nothing has gone too badly. <laughs> And uh, just wrapping things up here, could you share with us a time where you had to be brave to overcome an obstacle or challenges? Yeah, absolutely. So I think I'm going to take us back to the army because I, I love wheeling this story out. So when I was in the army, when I just entered officer cadet school, 
I actually suffered a, a very bad medical emergency. So my lung ruptured and collapsed inside of my chest. And I had to be sent to the emergency room. I didn't report sick for about three days because I just thought it was a regular muscle ache. And then when I showed up in the emergency room, they did an x-ray and they immediately put me on an oxygen mask and they said, you might not have known this, but your lung is collapsing inside your chest. And f- yeah, interestingly enough, because I took three days to report it, I had actually managed to reinflate my own lung to a certain extent such that I didn't immediately require surgery. So that was, uh, that, that was fun. So yeah, I, I was immediately downgraded. Like my medical status was downgraded and I was no longer combat fit. Uh, I was downgraded to the lowest possible pest status, which was E9L9. And I was slated to, it was a temporary status at first, but it was slated to become permanent. And I really, really didn't want that. So I went to three different lung specialists, uh, respiratory specialists, and I had them clear me for training and say, yeah, this guy's fine. He can can go back, no problem. Even though the entire time I was still grappling with uh, a fair amount of pain because what ultimately happened was that around the site of the rupture, some scar tissue developed and it's still there today. So what tends to happen sometimes, it's, it was a lot more prominent then, not less so now, although it does still come into play from time to time, that scar tissue actually sticks to the chest wall and it's just agony. It's, it's so bad. It feels like a heart attack, but on steroids. So yeah, uh, but despite that, I knew what I wanted to do during national service. I knew what I wanted to get out of it. And I figured, you know, if I have to spend two years doing this, I might as well get something out of it. So I pushed very hard. I eventually got my medical status upgraded back to combat fit. And then I went back into OCS. And of course, I finished it. I barely limped past the finish line. It was an ordeal and a half. It's not great. It was very uncomfortable, but I forced myself through it. Yeah, and I now looking back, I'm very thankful that I did. Amazing. What a way to wrap up this podcast episode. I love to paraphrase the three big teams that I got from you. Uh, the first, of course, is thank you so much for sharing your personal journey into space as the final frontier <laughs> and as the first frontier as a kid uh, to your love of Star Wars, to writing science fiction, to how you actually got into the space industry as a professional in terms of both law as well as a founder. So that's really been an interesting journey to hear and listen to. The second, of course, was I think I love that little dynamic where we got to go deeper <laughs> into the future of space, have this interesting legal but also historical view <laughs> on uh, the future of space and uh, property rights and tragedy of the commons and uh, I guess our little uh, predictions about how it develops. So I guess one is the East India Company future <laughs> of space and the second being uh, the Americans trying to one-up the Chinese and vice versa <laughs> on the Mars landing. And the third thank you so much is really kind of like that a little bit of a conversation about how Southeast Asia could continue to play a role in the space industry, not just as a function of a national push and patriotism to build it out, but also because of how the space industry is starting to spread out and become more distributed and open up opportunities to more great folks from around the world, including Southeast Asia. Thank you so much, Yukchi, for coming on the show. Yeah, it was lovely to be here. I, I had a ton of fun. Yeah, I love talking about space, sometimes too much. I tend to bore the living daylights out of everybody around me, so it's great to have a fresh pair of ears to drone on into. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com 
to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.